0: STOP!
1: Good. Buongiorno. Buenos dias. Ni hao. Konichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome one and all to Abacabu Cafe. I am your host, Jason Almi I want to welcome you guys to a very special episode today. Today, we're going to be talking about television episode 48, the final episode of the TV series entitled, I Found Love and Repeat from the Beginning. This episode originally aired on March 7th of 1988. It was directed by Mochizuki Tomomi. This is the first real TV episode directed by Mochizuki. Interestingly, Mochizuki directed the pilot episode, the the non-canon Shonen Jump episode that was the very first animated Orange Road episode ever released, but it's not considered canon as far as the series goes. Now, Mochizuki will be back to direct the first film, I Want to Return to That Day, which represents a tremendous stylistic departure from this particular episode, as well as the whole TV series, really. So it'll be interesting to talk about Anohi right after discussing this episode and the extreme departure that that movie is from this, and that it was helmed by the same director. Today's episode was written by Terada Kenji. Of course, of course, Terada Kenji cannot allow anyone else to write the last episode. This is Tarada's 25th TV or OVA episode that we have discussed. He's easily the most prolific writer of Orange Road Media behind Matsumoto himself. As something worth noting, I think, in the original Japanese language title of this episode, the words da capo are used. When I told you the title of today's episode, I used the English translation. But da capo is used in the original Japanese. Decapo capo is an Italian musical term, and it means from the beginning. It's used oftentimes in sheet music to direct someone reading to repeat the previous piece of music. It's often used to save space on sheet music. Fine is the Italian term that's often used in film, even American films, to tell us that our narrative has concluded. So it's different than decapo, capo, Right. Using an Italian term like da Capo means that the filmmakers were almost assuredly aware of the term fine and its use in film, which means that they chose to use da Capo intentionally. There's something about repeat from the beginning that's significant to this episode, enough so that they needed to use it in the episode title it might refer to Kasuga and Ayukua reliving the first few moments of episode 47 at the conclusion of this episode. We see them repeating the opening of, of 47. This time, Kasuga is pretending to be asleep and they kind of reenact this this initial opening of, of episode 47. They kind of narrate the events as they occur. He knows he's repeating a moment. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in this episode. But in larger pieces of music, Da Capo sometimes is used to indicate a return to the very beginning of the piece. So you have to wonder, do the filmmakers intend for the events of episodes 47 and 48 to lead us right back to the beginning of the TV series, like episode one? It's a clear indication that Kasuga's excursion to 1982 has always been part of the timeline. Terada and Mochizuki are inviting us to go back and re-watch the very beginning of episode one with new eyes. There's evidence in that first episode that Kasuga has always been Ayukua's Hatsukoi, and I'll talk about that more again at the end of this episode. So the opening minute or so of episode 48 is comprised of a rehash of the last minutes of episode 47, which makes budgetary sense. They get to reuse these art assets, but It's also kind of a historical artifact of the way that television was consumed at the time, and it's a big part of the nostalgia factor for me. As I've mentioned on previous episodes of this podcast, in 1988, there was no DVR, there's no Netflix, no Hulu, no on-demand viewing, there's no internet streaming. All that shit is the stuff that the internet gave us. In 1988, if you were going to miss an episode of a television program you could program your VCR to record or maybe get a friend to do it for you, but that was your only option. You had to record the episode, otherwise you were going to miss it. There was no option to queue it up later using a streaming service. But the producers of television in the 1980s, they operated under the assumption that you might very well have missed previous episodes. So a lot of TV sitcoms of the 80s are non-sequential. You can watch most of the episodes in any order without noticing. And the same is true for a lot of Orange Road. You can kind of mix these episodes up. And apart from some of the artwork that depicts the season, you know, like it's snowing in the winter episodes and uh, the cherry blossoms are blooming in the, the spring episodes. Otherwise, you might not notice the sequence of these episodes. You could play the events out of order, and it's not a really big deal. And that's because producers of television in the 80s, they didn't want their viewers to get completely lost. It kind of also explains why two-parters are rare, both in Orange Road and in many other shows of that time. Typically, a two-parter was reserved for some big event, like a season finale or a series finale that the station could hype up. They wanted to make sure you didn't miss it. But They couldn't do it all the time either because it was likely that you were going to miss some episodes throughout the season. They didn't want people to feel lost and end up dropping out of the show. What's interesting to consider is that just a little bit more than a decade after this episode aired, HBO began airing The Sopranos, which is the show that's credited for changing television. And that was almost 25 years ago. Now, we're all nowadays very accustomed to shorter seasons, 12 episodes or so, that feature an overarching narrative for the entire season. And they demand that you have to see all of the episodes. Otherwise, you won't get the narrative. And that really just was not the precedent in 1988. They wanted you to be able to kind of come and go. So it makes Orange Road seem almost quaint in that respect. It's like a a bit old-fashioned when viewed in the modern context, and it's a tremendous part of the charm of this show for me. As we get into the new content for the episode, we cut to an image of a toppled bike. It's got training wheels on it, so you know it's a little kid's bike. And it's paired with the sound of a child crying off-screen. So we already know it's Yusaku. These audiovisual cues build meaning for us. It's semantics. I often refer to it as semantics in film. These things have meaning. The toppled bike, we hear crying off screen, we know what we've seen in the last episode. So immediately we already think something's happened to Yusaku. He's fallen off the bike for some reason. It communicates this without us being explicitly told what's happened. It's part of the really subtle subconscious magic of of filmmaking. Within just one second, we already know what's happened. He's fallen off his bike. Now, Shikaru is still beating Yusaku. She didn't take anything away from Kasuga chastising her for hitting him in the last episode. But then we see Shikaru attempt something different to placate Yusaku here. She tries kindness. She walks over to his bike and she sets it upright. She... Kindly encourages him to stop crying instead of just berating him. Now, Shikaru, more than any other character, has been in a state of flux during the course of this television series. Kasaga and Ayukuwa, on the other hand, They're a little older, and so they're a little bit more grown into what will be their adult personalities, which is not to say that they don't change or grow over the course of the show, but it is to say that they have mostly figured out how to interface with other people. But Shikaru is the character that has gone between being brash and mean and being over the top, almost too sweet, depending on the context. So she really hasn't settled into a single persona yet. Depending on who she's with, who she's addressing, she's either super aggressive and mean or she's like saccharin sweet, over-the-top sweet. That shows us that Shikaru is caught between childhood and adulthood more so than Kasaga and Ayukua. She has a little bit more maturing to do than they do. And we also know that kids are mean kids oftentimes lack empathy. It's not something you get right out of the box. It's something you have to learn as you go through life. The filmmakers often show us Shikaru behaving meanly and then sweetly to show us that she's still in that transition, sometimes in the very same scene. I'm recalling an early episode, it may have been episode two, maybe three, Kasuga bumps into Shikaru accidentally inside Disco Mobius and She doesn't know it's him. So she turns around and she's like brash and aggressive. She's going to kick his ass. Then she realizes it's Kasuga and she's got to change her tune. All of a sudden, oh, I didn't know you came here. That's so cool. You go to discos too. Suddenly she's sweet. She's caught between these two personas and it depends on the context. And she's still in this transition. And so this moment in this episode, it's like her first step along that path to emotional maturity there's really no other purpose for this scene. It has no other narrative significance other than to show us the impetus of this development for Shikaru as she goes from literally a child in this scene, but but she will be, as the series progresses, uh, more mature. Not quite there yet. She's still pretty young, but but you can see this development kind of starting. This is like the seed of the development starting right here. And it works. I mean, Yusaku is immediately placated by Shikaru being kind to him. Here she's learning that she can use kindness or sweetness to get what she wants. Additionally, the camera is positioned in the sky, kind of amongst the trees. So it's kind of a God's eye view, which reminds us that we're outside this narrative. We're watching the characters. So we're almost like looking down at her developmental moment as if we're monitoring her progress, her development. Now, when Ayukua mentions that she ran into oji as she was looking for Kosuga, the latter finally realizes that all of this time travel shenanigans was Oji-san's doing from the get-go. At the same time, young Shikaru goes running by, and she assumes that Ayukua Maruka is actually the elder Ayukua's sister, whose first name I don't believe we ever learn. I don't believe we ever learn Ayukua's older sister's name. Maybe they say it in the manga somewhere. Here, Ayuko begins to realize that she's in the past. She recognizes Chikaru immediately, and she's much quicker than Casca. I mean, she's smarter than Costco, so it makes sense. She picks up on it a lot faster than she's in the past. There's a tracking shot that simulates... Shikaru's point of view as she runs past Ayukua and Kasuga, it's not especially well done. It's kind of a product of its times, especially the movement of the Tree of Memories. It looks very flat, but nonetheless, it's kind of ambitious. It's, a, and it's an ambitious shot for the budget and the time. And I think a lot of the animation in this episode is similarly ambitious. It may not look great by today's standard, but maybe like the first Star Wars film, Doesn't look great by today's standard, but you can tell like they had an ambition. They had a look that they wanted to achieve. And even if it's a little hokey now compared to computer imagery that we can do, it's still kind of, it's still kind of nice. It's still, even if it's not perfect, it's still kind of well done. So the camera shot. Remains low and slightly off kilter when Kasuga tries to explain to Ayukawa that she's been sent back to 1982 by his grandfather without spilling the beans on his power. There's really no way he can cover this one, so I guess he decides he's going to tell Ayukawa everything. We cut immediately back to 1988, and it shows us that Ojisan don't give one shit. He's playing video games with Kazuya like he's already forgotten about the teenagers he sent back to the past. The whole gang is, of course, wondering where. Kasuga and Ayukua are, they want to see Ayukua one last time before she goes to America. Remember, she's going to America tomorrow. In a significant moment, Shikaru goes to bonk Yusaku on the head for making a suggestion that she disagrees with. If you disagree with Shikato, you're going to get hit. But he deftly dodges her. And for a moment, she looks kind of puzzled, like she looks down at her fist, like, wasn't that supposed to hit you in the head? It was almost like she didn't think Yusaku would dodge her. I mean, she had to have known that Yusaku, now having trained in martial arts for so many years, is a pretty phenomenal athlete. He's going to dodge her trying to bonk him, or at least he can. It's almost like she didn't expect him to actually do so. It's like her response to things changing with time, like her dynamic with Yusaku has shifted. He doesn't have to suffer her abuses anymore. He's not subject to her violence. Then Kazuya drops a bomb maybe Ayukua and Kasuga have eloped, which would be a lot more of a realistic possibility if they weren't only 16 years old. At any rate, Kazuya ought to know what he's doing here. Kazuya has always been portrayed as conniving, conspiring. He always knows more than he lets on, and he always has a plan, and that's because he can read minds. He can read everyone's mind around him in the room. Manami and Kurumi then use the power to smash Jingoro into Kazuya's face and shut him up. Like, if somebody's talking too much, just stuff a cat in their mouth, right? It works way better than a pair of socks. But it seems like the damage is done. They walk it back a little bit by musing that Kazuya must have learned a new word, and he doesn't really know what he's saying. But Shikaru kind of pretends to buy it. But in her uh, voice performance by uh, Hara Eriko, it subtly conveys that she's shaken at the prospect. There's a part of Shikaru here that doesn't want to believe it, but maybe she knows at this point. Maybe she hasn't known all along. I have a hard time believing that she's known all along, like she's going to claim in, I want to return to that day, but but maybe here it's starting to dawn on her. At that very moment, Komatsu and Hata barge in. I guess they left and came back because they were they were there at the apartment with everyone else in the previous episode. And they suggest the exact same thing. They're not even all the way through the door yet before they suggest that Ayuku and Kasuga must have eloped. That's what they heard. That's the rumor. And Kurumi and Manami openly use the power here. First, by slapping them both with slippers, which maybe, you know, the first slipper, maybe that was thrown by a hand. You could could maybe see someone throwing a slipper and then it hit you in the face. But then the, the second slipper levitates over to Komatsu's face before it winds up and then smacks him in such an impossible way that it could only be done by telekinesis. And then even more obviously, the twins levitate Jinguro over to Hata and Komatsu and Jinguro just claws the shit out of them, or just claws their face up. And it's never mentioned again, but Komatsu and Hata undoubtedly witnessed the power in a very direct way right here. Manami and Kurumi pretty much revealed that they were espers to Komatsu and Hata here. And I suppose it's the type of thing that you can get away with when it's the very last episode of the TV series. But I'll note that even in the manga, Komatsu and Hata never learn of the ESP power. It's not something that they're ever privy to. Back in 1982, we see that no trip to the past would be complete without revealing the first meeting between Umao and Ushko. What a wasted opportunity it would have been to show us so much of 1982 without showing us an early look at Umao and Ushko six years earlier. Umao and Ushko haven't appeared since episode 45. So while that's only two TV episodes that they were left out of, they were not included in any of the OVA that we've discussed except White Lovers. So, so it has been many weeks since I've gotten to talk about an Umao and Ushko cameo. And their origin reveals some striking similarities between their romance and that of Kasuga and Ayukua's. Like Kasuga and Ayukua, they met in passing on the 100 stairs. They also met because Ushko dropped her handkerchief and Umao retrieved it, not unlike Ayukua losing her hat and Kasuga catching it. From there, it's love at first sight, and their ensuing relationship is a foregone conclusion, much like Kasuga's and Ayukua's. And it's also a cool way to transition us back to 1982— where we next see Kosuga revealing his secret to Ayukua. They're seated on the swing set that is featured many times before in previous episodes and is often the symbol of childhood in this show or the childish nature that the characters are transitioning out of. They're growing out of their childishness, but they still sometimes exhibit at times that childish naivety that they're still carrying with them a little bit because you don't just slough that off in one evening. Importantly, this Was the setting for Kasuga's near admission of his feelings for Ayukua in episode 12. That was the episode where Ayukua very nearly left Japan for America. So we have a parallelism here. Ayukua is supposed to be leaving for America the next day. Obviously, this is upsetting a lot of people, Kasuga chiefly among them. And here also, Ayukua is meant to be leaving for America the next day. And again, before going to America, she's having a very important, very life-changing, for them, conversation with Kasuga here at that swing set. So we revisit this setting in an episode where Ayuko is having to say goodbye to Kasuga to finally fulfill that, that threat, that promise of leaving for America for an indeterminate amount of time. We don't know when she's going to be back. We see more expressionistic colors and shapes. Just like last episode, they whiz past Kasuga in the background as Kasuga's swinging back and forth on the swing set. And he unfortunately misses an opportunity to teleport off the swing and demonstrate that he's not full of shit about the ESP. But, oh well, she seems to believe him anyway, even without him demonstrating the power for her. And as long as he's revealing his secrets she might as well tell him that she likes him in a romantic, let's elope to 1982 kind of way. And they share a real embrace here. It's kind of nice. It's kind of their first like romantic kind of consensual we're into each other kind of embrace. And as they do, this track, Under the Tree of Memories plays. It's a nice track. It's off Sound Color 3. You can find it on YouTube quite easily. I'll throw a link in the show notes to uh, YouTube of this track. It's appropriate for this scene. It's good stuff. Now, Casca must realize he's won the romance lottery equivalent of the Mega Millions because even he's getting a little mushy before telling Ayukua that he'll go get them some food and be right back. Let's split up is not an option for me when I'm marooned six years in the past for predictable reasons that become immediately apparent. Kasuga does finally manage to time slip when he accidentally trips down the 100 stairs. Here is where they adapt one of my favorite stories from the manga. I only wish they could have devoted more screen time to this adventure. I could have used a whole episode of this. Kasuga doesn't just time slip, he dimension hops He's back to 1988, but it's not his 1988. It's 1988 in a universe where he was never born. In this alternate world, we get to see radically different versions of our favorite characters, which is kind of fun. It's kind of cool. It's like they all get to try on new personalities and mix things up a little bit in some new ways. The implication, of course, is how all of these characters would be if not for Kasuga. What would their lives be like if Kasuga wasn't in them? Shikaru is 100% mean and a delinquent, along with Yusaku, they're both delinquents. Without Kasuga showing him kindness and compassion in 1982, Yusaku developed a little bit differently, it's clear. He doesn't retain that sensitivity. Kasuga showed him it's okay to be sensitive. He doesn't retain that sensitivity here in this alternate 1988. And apparently, Shikaru became a lot more sweet-natured when she decided she wanted to date Kasuga, Without him, she's mean girl Shikaru on steroids 100% of the time. Komatsu and Hata aren't just potential sexual assailants in this version of 1988, they're also bad lieutenant style cops who routinely abuse their power and authority. An establishing shot of Kasuga's apartment also shows their name placard, only this time it's missing the name Kyosuke. It only shows Kasuga Takashi. Manami and Kurumi, it does not show Kyosuke's name. That should be our first clue. I mean, we know from this moment on, he's not going to find any safe haven there, right? Kurumi and Manami levitate Jingoro to slash Kasuga in a sequence that parallels almost perfectly their earlier treatment of Komatsu and Hata back in the, the real 1988. It's really too bad that he couldn't like levitate something or teleport real quick to show them that He's a Kasuga from another dimension. He could have convinced them real quick, but I guess he didn't even have a chance. It was just Jingaro slashing his eyes out. At this point, it's gone from dusk to totally dark, so Kasuga seems to have spent a few hours wandering this alternate version of 1988. And in another super ham-fisted bit of exposition, Kasuga chooses this moment to suddenly remember that oji had at some point in the past warned him that if a non-esper happens to make physical contact with their past self, they will cease to exist. It's like this super specific warning that's that's really hyper-specific to this one instance where oji himself sent a non-esper Ayukua back to the past. But again, he's warning Kasuga it could have dire consequences. Suddenly there's introduced this existential threat to Ayukua lurking in 1982. It's another reason Kasuga should not have left her alone. They should have gone to get food together. The filmmakers went so far as to show us how Kasuga imagines it would go down as well. So we get to see Ayukua screaming as she's reduced to particles like she was sucked into a black hole and spaghettified or something, and Ayukua's demise quickly fades to white, and then just as quickly, we pull back to see that the white was the reflection in Kasuga's eye. It's kind of a slick effect, and it was almost like being so zoomed in on Kasuga's brain that we could see what he's thinking, and it's obvious that he expects contacting oneself to end very painfully. Keep in mind, they can talk all they want. They just can't touch each other. Of course, he's wrapped up in his fantasy. He shouts Ayukua's name and alerts the alternate Ayukua from the world where Kasuga never existed. And this alternate Ayukua never met Kasuga in 1982, of course. He never saved her from the soccer bullies in that universe. He never bought her the red straw hat. And he never brainwashed her younger self into conforming to his idea of femininity. Yet, the alternate Ayukua is familiar to us. She's very similar to the at-school persona of Ayukawa in the first few episodes, the scary, intimidating delinquent. She initially tells him to beat it before realizing that officers Komatsu and Hata are after him, and apparently she likes them about as much as in the main timeline, so she decides to help Kasuga hide. Prior to this moment, it may have seemed that Kasuga bumping into Komatsu and Hata only occurred to show what they were up to in this alternate timeline, but we can see now that it actually served a narrative purpose by keeping Kasuga together with the alternate Ayukawa. It's the impetus for her to hide him within Abakabu. And just when Kasuga is about to scram, the biker gang led by Yukari shows up. Why make Yukari the leader of the biker gang that wants to fight Ayukua, you and I might be asking ourselves. I definitely am. There's been a subtext of conflict with Yukari under the surface throughout the show. Shu is Ayukua's cousin, not Yukari. So keep in mind, Ayukua is related to Shu. She's known him probably her whole life, and Yukari is his girlfriend, so she hasn't known Yukari as long. And In any conflict between Shu and Yukari, Ayukua probably is going to take Shu's side because he's her relative. Yukari is the outsider. Also, Yukari has at times gotten fairly close to Kasuga. She's treading on Ayukua's turf a little bit there. Figuratively speaking, here in this alternate timeline, it's literal. She's literally treading on Ayukawa's turf. And I think that's a symbol of Yukari getting close to Kasuga in the main timeline, especially in that winter beach episode. Even if they didn't do anything sexual, I mean, Kasuga spent the night there. They were laughing. They were having fun. Even if they didn't get physically close, I mean, it was an emotional kind of, they got more friendly for sure. That's Yukari treading on Ayukawa's turf. And we see that reflected here in this kind of strange, like this alternate timeline went from a little weird because Casago wasn't there to like kind of dystopian because the only two cops apparently are Komatsu and Hata. They split shit as soon as Ayukua shows them a a, a playing card, like she's going to throw it at them. And then no cop is seen again as the biker gang is driving their motorcycles through the windows of Abakabu, crashing them, exploding, causing giant fires, and then, holding Kasuga at knife point and knocking him out in the back of the head and then kidnapping Ayukawa too. There's not a cop to be found. They've got Kasuga tied up outside of a school. They're beating Ayukua with a whip. She's yelling and screaming. Not a cop to be found. So it gets kind of dystopian. This alternate 1988 is not just a world where Kasuga didn't exist. It's like weird rules almost and, and almost dreamlike in its narrative. And I think that's important here, and it's, it's, it's the reason why we see Yukari leading the gang. She doesn't date Shu in this, in this alternate universe. In this alternate universe, she exists to literally tread on his turf, but it's a reflection of what has been happening in the main timeline as well. So there's this purpose to it. Meanwhile, main timeline Ayukua is confronted by herself from six years ago. The younger Ayukua notices her and initiates a conversation. So intercutting between Kasuga's plight in the alternate timeline and then main Ayukua meeting her younger self helps to increase this dramatic tension. Main Ayukua is an apparel that she's not yet aware of. She doesn't know that she shouldn't shake her younger self's hand. And they don't exchange much dialogue, but young Ayukua asks the older Ayukua if Kasuga is her boyfriend. And Ayukua seems to be deep in thought, as if she's remembering something she hasn't thought about for a while which is good because if my theory that Kasuga's venture into the past has always been a feature of the main timeline, then it means that main timeline Ayukua has already had this conversation with herself when she was younger. And now that she's older, she's on the other end of the conversation. She's remembering it now. Meanwhile, in the alternate timeline, Ayukua is being beaten by Yukari for some reason. It's never really fully explained. And that's another reason this alternate timeline feels kind of ephemeral and dreamlike. It's like, you don't need to know what their motivations are. Yukari just needs Ayukawa to say uncle, apparently, and, and that's not in alternate Ayukawa's vocabulary, even though it seems like a harmless concession. Because what's she really giving up? If she just says, okay, Yukari, you win, then they let her go. And it seems especially harmless given that Yukari is going to let her gang members sexually assault Ayukawa as a penalty for not doing whatever it is that Yukari is wanting from her anyway. So, there's a lot going on here that's not fully explained. It doesn't really need to be because we're recognizing this as symbolic of a conflict that's occurring in the main timeline. And there's a parallelism with the Ayukuas of both timelines simultaneously being in serious jeopardy. It's not enough to have one Ayukua hanging in the balance. Kasaka has two Ayukuas he needs to save back in 1982. Main timeline Ayukua is conversing with her younger self while they both lean up against a jungle gym. They're shot from the back through the bars of the jungle gym and the camera pans from the back of main timeline Ayukua over to the young Ayukua as they deliver their lines. And then it cuts back to main Ayukua. The movement of the bars as the camera pans side to side and the general complexity of the shot feels a little bit like the animators are trying to show off again it's another example of that ambitious animation that i mentioned a few minutes ago with the tracking shot that that simulates shikata's point of view so it's another example that they're they're going all out on this last episode they're really trying to make it visually distinct and show off a little bit maybe finally we cut back to the front of the two Ayukawas as they converse, and we see that the shot is composed identically to Kasuga's earlier imagination of Ayukua contacting her former self and dissolving. So it parallels that, and we're thinking, oh no, is this the moment that Kasuga imagined? Is this the moment he feared? Is this the moment that the Ayukawa of our main timeline is about to be erased from existence, She's at the precipice of existential danger. She's about to shake hands with her younger self when we cut back to the alternate Ayukua, just as she's about to be sexually assaulted by gang members. So again, we've got two Ayukua's hanging in the balance. How is Kasa going to rescue them both? This technique is meant to prolong the tension by drawing out these moments of danger for Ayukua. It's not allowing the viewer to see a quick resolution. From outside, Kasuga can hear Ayukua shriek as she's overpowered. Does he hear her because he's outside and she's just really loud? Or Kasuga mentions hearing her but not being telepathic. How could he hear Ayukua? He muses to himself. That's a meaningful line. Does it imply some deep bond with Ayukua across timelines that would allow him to sense her imminent danger? For some reason, Kasuga spends a moment struggling physically against his bonds, despite using the power to easily escape such confinement in Hawaiian suspense. Moreover, there's no indication that Kasuga has depleted his power at this point. In fact, when he finally does break free, he has his own kind of Akira moment where the whole structure he's bound to shatters as he screams Ayukua's name. And that's important. It's this dramatic climax. And interestingly, both the alternate Ayukua, who was inside the school, as well as main timeline Ayukua, who is in a completely different dimension, both hear Kasuga call her name, which actually helps reinforce the idea that there's some deeper bond between them that allows Ayukua to hear Kasuga and vice versa, at least to a limited degree when there's this existential threat. It's enough to save main timeline Ayukua from the handshake of doom, and as Kasuga runs to save alternate Ayukua, He runs down the hallway of the school towards the camera, which rapidly rotates 360 degrees as he runs past it. It's fast. It's barely noticeable, but it adds to the surreal nature of this alternate timeline. I mean, for a moment, things are literally upside down on screen. Alternate Ayukua then witnesses her would-be rapists levitate out of the window as her bonds are effortlessly released. She experiences the power without too much fanfare. I mean, she doesn't even remark about it. We know other espers like Manami and Kurumi exist in this timeline. Perhaps ESP is not a secret here without Casca there to constantly remind them to keep a lid on their powers. Maybe they use their powers more openly. Maybe there are other espers who do so as well, other Casca family members who run around uh, Tokyo and other towns nearby, some of these suburbs like the one that Ayukua lives in, and they use their power all the time. And so it's not a big deal when uh, would-be sexual assailants go a sailing, floating out the window. Now, the would-be rapists are shown plummeting into the pool, followed by a cut to Kazuya similarly splashing into the bath. It's a parallel across the two shots, although there's really not much of an analogy between the motorcycle gang members and Kazia. Also, we never see what becomes of the alternate version of Yukari. After leaving alternate Ayukua to her lackeys, she's never mentioned again. There's no resolution to their nebulous conflict. We, we simply get Casuga to the point where he is the savior of the alternate Ayukua and we don't need Yukari anymore. At this point, alternate Ayukua expresses gratitude that she met Casuga and in a particularly cheesy bit of dialogue, she muses that she's going to have to shape up her act for his sake. It implies that she wants to date him and that reducing her delinquent activity would be a prerequisite for that. This would seem to imply that Kasuga and Ayukua are star-crossed, they're fated, they're meant to be. It doesn't matter what universe it is, once Ayukua meets Kasuga, she falls for him. It also strongly implies that Kasuga is the right guy for Ayukua at a deep fundamental level. Like he connects with the things about Ayukua that make her Ayukua, whether she's a delinquent or a precocious adolescent or the main timeline Ayukua that we know and love. It also seems readily apparent that Kasuga has a good impact on Ayukua too. In both the alternate and main timelines, Kasuga inspires Ayukua to be less of a punk ass, to uh, kick the tobacco habit, to be more open to other people and less cynical. Thus, Kasuga's jaunt to this weird alternate timeline wasn't pointless. The filmmakers wanted to show us, they wanted us to know for sure, that Kasuga and Ayukua are meant to be together and that it's a good thing for them both. It also helps to relieve any squeamishness at the possibility that Ayukua only loves Kasuga in the present day because he had a tremendous, albeit coincidental, impact on her when she was 10. So it's not like he accidentally groomed Ayukua in 1982. I mean, he might have accidentally groomed Ayukua in 1982, but this sequence shows us that Ayukua is bound to fall for Kasuga in any scenario because they have this thing. Of course, Kosaka falls off the motorcycle he was riding with Alternate Ayukawa and time slips back to 1982, back into the main timeline, simply resuming his fall down the 100 stairs. He picks up right where he left off, despite spending what seemed like several hours in the alternate timeline. Also, you have to feel a little bit bad for Alternate Ayukawa. She almost had him. He just falls off the bike and disappears. She must have thought he died or something. I'm sure she pulled over immediately after he fell and went looking for him. She probably called all the local hospitals the next day. She was scanning the newspaper for several days, looking at obituaries, all to no avail. She never hears from the guy again. Ultimate ghosting. Near the end, we also see Jingoro as a kitten approach main timeline Ayukua. So it would seem that the Casugas adopted, I use that term loosely, Jingoro as a stray sometime just before the opening of episode one. That also means that Jingoro lived for five years as a stray before the Kasugas moved to town, which explains why Jingoro has behaved more like a hostage at times than a part of the family. Additionally, our smartest character, Hayukua, initially mistakes Kazuya for the Kasuga of 1982, except she's forgetting that he moved to that town in 1987, so while he was alive in 1982 and his appearance probably was very similar to Kazuya's, as mentioned in previous episodes, it takes our smartest character a moment to remember that she can't possibly bump into the Kasuga of 1982 in that town. At this point, Kasuga assures Ayukua that he will wait for her to return from America. It's easy in this episode to forget that she's bound to leave for the U.S. the next day. Again, we're not sure how long she will be gone But it appears that she'll be returning because she doesn't correct Kasuga or tell him that she's not coming back. It doesn't seem like her move to America is going to be permanent. It might be kind of long term, but it's not going to be permanent. So it seems like the pair will be reunited eventually. This is not unlike the manga ending in which Ayukawa does leave for America finally, but eventually returns to Japan a year later. In another interesting turn, Kazuya gives the pair at least a little bit of options for what moment in 1988 they'd like to return to. It seems that they don't have to return to the moment that Ayuko left 1988. We cut from the sun setting through the trees in the park in 1982 to the tree of memories in 1988 as Love is in Your Eyes plays. This is a nice track, another one off Sound Color 3. It seems that Kasuga has elected for them to return to that morning, replaying the events of the opening of episode 47. The opening plays out real similarly, except the two of them, of course, still remember their experience in 1982 from moments ago. It's subtle, but there are slight differences in their lines and differences in their behavior that make it obvious that they're picking up where they left off in 1982, relationship-wise. Kasuga referring to that moment as their second first kiss acknowledges that he and Ayukua have kissed before in 1982. Of course, that was six years ago for Ayukua and about six or eight hours ago for Kasuga. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's evidence in the very first episode that Kasuga has always been Ayukua's hot Sukhoi, that his venture to the past has always been a part of the main timeline. For one, she knew that her younger self likes Kasuga because she remembers liking him when she was 10, of course. Most compelling, though, is that Ayukua just gives Kasuga the red straw hat in episode one. It's a hat that she's owned and presumably worn since 1982, a hat that was given to her by her Hatsukoi. Why would she give this random stranger a hat with such personal, emotional, nostalgic value? Then there's her general affection towards Kasuga that extends throughout the series, which at times seems relatively unearned. Especially early on, there's not really anything he did to get her to like him, besides catch the hat. All of this leads us to the question, does Ayukua actually recognize Kasuga as her Hatsukoi at the beginning of episode one? This question inevitably rises from critical thought about the narrative of episodes 47 and 48. Once you accept that Kasuga is not making changes to the timeline and that his time travel has always been a part of this narrative, then you have to consider that perhaps Ayukua recognized him. Perhaps Ayukua knew from the outset about his power, about everything. It's definitely possible, and it even helps to explain some previous points I've discussed. It helps to explain, in fact, why Ayukua pretended not to know Kasuga at school in Episode 1. Because she knows that he's some kind of Esper, something like that. She witnessed some use of the power. She saw some things that couldn't be explained. She clearly couldn't tell everybody that she remembers Kasuga from five years earlier and that he was her Hatsukoi because... He's actually a year younger in episode one than her Hatsukoi was five years earlier. That's a little confusing, but suffice it to say that she might have pretended not to know Kasuga because she didn't want to out him as an esper. So it's possible that they're using episode 48 to kind of retcon the series a little bit and convince us that maybe Ayukua knew something more than she let on from the get-go. Her reaction to Kasuga telling her about the power in this episode is also kind of inconclusive. It's hard to tell what she's thinking. She doesn't act super surprised. She doesn't demand evidence. So maybe she did know all along. And Ayuko and Kasuga finally share their second first kiss, their real first kiss, under the tree of memories. And as they do so, we get a little bit more ambitious animation. We see the camera positioned at the ground looking upwards, so that we can see the sunlight streaming through the leaves. We see the shadows of the leaves and the sunlight on their faces just as they prepare to kiss. And we see the sun, the clouds, the the leaves shifting and moving so we can see the light playing across their faces. And it is another kind of impressive, kind of uh, ambitious bit of animation that, that helps this episode to stand apart. And in addition, the filmmakers helped this episode Stand apart by capping things off. They do Orange Road on steroids in this last episode. They give us a little bit of everything that we've come to love from the Orange Road series. They give us cute Ayukua, they give us punkish ass kicking Ayukua. They give us precocious 10-year-old Ayukua. They give us motorcycle gangs crashing into Abakabu. They give us time slips, dimension hops. They give us teleportation, telekinesis, secret powers being revealed, Kasuga blowing shit up with his mind powers, Jinguro slicing people. We even see Jinguro as a kitten and we get some Uma Onushko to top it all off. You can't complain about that. You know what else you can't complain about? You can't complain about the wealth of bonus content that awaits you at our Team Almy Studios Patreon. Please consider becoming a member. You can go over to patreon.com slash Team Almy. You can become a member today and get access to a ton of bonus content. We've even got a whole podcast over there that nobody else gets. It's Patreon exclusive. Shit happens when you party naked podcast. I would love for you guys to go support the show, support Team Almy Studios, become a patron. Thank you to all of my patrons. I appreciate you guys so so much and there's a lot more content coming. We're going to be doing um, episode commentaries, and those are going to be a Patreon exclusive for the foreseeable. I may eventually release them to this RSS, but for a while, the watch-alongs are going to be Patreon exclusive, and that's primarily because, A, I really appreciate my patrons, but B, uh, it also is going to contain... Copyright material, and I just don't want to get dinged on like the normal internet. So uh, head on over to Patreon.com/slashTMAL me become a member. I love you guys all very much, and I want to send you guys kisses over the airwaves via this RSS. I appreciate you guys. Also, please check out my other podcasts. I'm going to put links in the show notes. Creatures of the Night. It's a kooky conspiracy theory paranormal podcast, and Pop Culture Mass, which is uh, more movies and pop culture music and stuff like that. Mostly American film. Some foreign film as well. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Thank you guys for making it all the way to episode 48. This feels like a milestone, but this is not the ending. The TV series may have ended, but anybody that knows me, anybody that even sort of knows me, anybody that's even encountered me one time in passing on a subway knows. I got a lot to say, and shutting up is difficult for me, okay? It's hard. It's hard. So this podcast, not going anywhere. Next week, we're going to cover Anohi, or I want to return to that day. That's going to be a giant episode. So it may take a little while for me to get that one together. That one's going to be extra long, even longer than today's episode. I promise you guys. That one's going to be a big, fat piece of content. After that, we're going to cover... Shinkor, the movie. That's going to be another long one too, just because the material's a little bit bigger and a little bit longer. So, after that, we're going to have several wrap up shows where I talk about different elements of the anime series, including the movies, including the OVA, including the TV episodes. We're going to talk about all of that. I'll talk about character analyses. We'll talk about themes and motifs again. After doing a few wrap up episodes, we're going to get into the manga, and it's going to be awesome. So, This show, Not Going Anywhere, like your love for Orange Road, okay? It's always in your heart. I'm going to always keep this podcast in your ears, and I want to thank you very, very much for listening, subscribing, telling me I'm awesome on the internet, all of that stuff. I love you guys for making it this far. And today, I got a very special piece of outro music for you guys. This piece of outro music slaps. It's by a band called Tsugai. I'm going to put a link to their YouTube in the show notes, so you can easily go check out their videos. They've got a ton of videos. It's a husband and wife band, and they do mostly covers, mostly of music from anime that you might be familiar with. They did a cover of Actress in the Mirror, and it absolutely slaps. The husband's on guitar, and he's wailing, and the wife is singing, and just released a few weeks ago, and it absolutely slaps. So I want you guys to enjoy. So guys, cover of Actress in the Mirror.